You know, every Sunday or every week that uh, I've been in this series, Overcomer, or at least many of the weeks, something in our world or something in our country, even something in our city has happened that reminds us of why we need to be thinking along these lines of being an overcomer. You know, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Or cheer up, I have overcome the world. So it seems like every week God is reminding the church that this world is not getting any better. It seems to just be going crazy. This past Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, a man rented a pickup truck at Home Depot in Passaic, New Jersey. 37 minutes later, he crossed the George Washington Bridge into Manhattan. And at 3.04 p.m., he swerved into a bicycle lane of the Hudson River Park, and he mowed down a bunch of people, killing eight and injuring 11 others in a one-mile stretch. He then crashed his truck into a school bus that was transporting students with special needs and injured uh, four of them who were also treated for uh, injuries. And he got out of the truck, and he started brandishing a weapon, and the police and shouting... Uh, Names of his God, I guess. And the police shot him in the abdomen, not to kill him. Took him to the hospital, treated him. And uh, I guess he's in custody as we speak. But this is the world we're living in. It's a world gone mad. And I think you and I better start paying attention to what's going on in our world. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, we better have our eyes open. Jesus told us these things were going to happen the closer the time came to his return and the closer the end of the world came. And, and, uh, but he didn't tell us just to sit there. He, he didn't want us just to sit there shivering in fright and fear. He, he said to us, fear not or be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so when we're talking about this, this series, Overcomers, we're really talking about the overcomer. And the only way we can be an overcomer is to be connected to the overcomer, the ultimate one, that is Jesus Christ. And We've got to remember some things for ourselves. We talked about that for several Sundays. We've got to resolve some things unto God, and we've got to respond in ways to other people. We're still kind of on, that's the outline that we've been following. We're still talking about resolving some things for ourselves. And we talked about resolving to choose not to be afraid. Fear is a choice, just like worry you know worry is a choice? It's not something that overcomes you and overtakes you. You choose to worry. You choose to fear. And uh, it's been said, I read recently somewhere in the last couple of weeks, that we're born with two basic fears. We're born with the fear of falling. And I forgot what the other one was. I'm afraid I forgot what the other one was. <laughs> Maybe it's fear of losing your mind. I don't know. But. And how many of you, when you were little, used to fear falling? I mean, you were dream that you were falling. And anybody ever hit before they woke up? I never did hit before I woke up. Thank God. They, I've always heard, though, if you hit before you woke up, you'd, you wouldn't wake up. But I don't know if that's true. That's why I was asking you if you ever dreamed that you'd hit. But, but every other fear is learned. It's learned. And, it, and it's chosen. So Jesus says, don't fear. We need to abide in the overcomer. We talked about that for the last several weeks getting closer connected to Christ through our time in the Word of God and uh, being yielded to and surrendering to the leadership of His Holy Spirit. And today I want to 
finish up this resolve section of what else we need to resolve. And that is, we need to resolve to pray. To pray. These things that are going on in our world, they ought to drive us to our knees. The key to overcoming in this crazy world is a strong connection to God through Christ. That's why I've been challenging us in the last several weeks. Get reconnected. Get recommitted to the Lord Himself, Jesus Christ. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace. In me, you will have peace in the midst of a crazy world. Get reconnected to Him. Get reconnected to His Word. And also in prayer. You know, if you... There was a time in Jesus' life that I would imagine was probably the most traumatic and turbulent of His life. And we see that in, in, as the Scripture describes this time in his life when he was facing the cross and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible records that uh, it says that he was in agony, so much so that the angels appeared and had to strengthen him. So much so that he sweat. His sweat was just not drops of water, it was drops of blood. That's the agony that he was in. And, and medical professionals have told us that that is very possible even for us at, at such times of great stress that the capillaries and under our skin can rupture and can come to the surface in drops of blood like sweat. That's the kind of agony Jesus was in here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a terrible tribulation time for him as he was facing the cross. The Son of God, God himself, who had become man, who had never tasted sin, was about to become sin. All of our sins were about to be placed on him. He has got to touch that stuff. The, the eternal Son of God who had never known what it was to, to die was fixing to have to die. And he was in agony. And then the Bible tells us about that time that he was separated himself from the disciples for, for a little distance and he was praying and he even admitted in Matthew 26, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And he asked the, his disciples, that immediate 12, which at this point was 11 because Judas had gone out to betray him, he said, stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and he fell down on his face and he prayed, oh my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Now, now picture this. Remember, this is the most turbulent time in the life of Jesus. Their follower, their, I mean their leader, their master, their savior. And this is the most traumatic experience Jesus has ever been through. And they're sleeping. And I wonder if, if that doesn't describe his followers today. I wonder if that doesn't describe me and you today that in a time in this world when God is more under attack than ever before in the history of this nation, His Word, His ways, His Son is under attack more than any other time in the history of our nation and God's people have their eyes closed and they're snoozing. And if they're not sleeping, they're playing. And it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to wake up and pay attention to what's going on. Jesus said, Why could you not watch with me for just one hour? Why are you sleeping? And Jesus then said, Watch and pray 
so that you do not enter into, he didn't say tribulation here. You know what word he used? Temptation. Because the temptation in tribulation is to withdraw from Christ, which we see happen to the disciples as they came in and arrested Jesus Christ and drug him away. What did the disciples do? They scattered and they ran. And see, I believe this is a description of what the people of God are doing today. They're, they're not standing up with Christ. They're not found being willing to be persecuted for Christ. They're keeping their mouth shut or they're pretending to be asleep. They're playing spiritual possum. And it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to wake up and stand up and identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in this world. Paul in the book of Ephesians, tells, tells us about the spiritual armor that we're to put on because the devil is like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour, and he's looking to devour you. Do you know that? He is your number one enemy. He's your arch enemy. He hates you, especially if you're a Christian. Even if you're not a Christian, he still hates you because you're created by God, and God loves you, and everything God loves, everything God created, the devil hates. And he's out to destroy you. He's out, if you're an unbeliever, he's out to keep you in unbelief so he can drag your soul to hell with him because that's where he's going. But even if you're a believer, he's still out to devour you, to deceive you, to divide you, to, to destroy your life, to make you ineffective for the, for the cause of Christ. And how are you going to stand against him? How are you going to resist him? How are you going to overcome him? Jesus said, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You don't have to be afraid of him. If you have Jesus Christ, you have the greatest power in the universe living inside of you. And he's greater than the devil who works outside of you. And he gave you authority and power over the devil in, your, in his name. But how are you going to overcome him when temptation comes? Well, Paul said he gave us the armor. God gave us his armor. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And when in that evil day when you're tempted, that you may be able to be found standing. And then he goes through all of these things. He talks about the, the uh, being girt about with God's truth, the belt of God's truth, the breastplate of his righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the breastplate of, I'm sorry, the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, when the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You ought to go through and study those pieces of armor and, and put it... Apply them to your life. But he didn't stop there. He said in verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end. In other words, being watchful in prayer. Same thing Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane at the most tribulation, tri uh, troublesome time of Jesus' life. He told them, watch and pray. Here, Paul's telling us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the devil's after you, He's, he wants to eat you, he wants to devour you, he wants to destroy you. He said, you better be put on the armor of God, and you better pray in all prayer and supplication. Be watchful to it unto the end. Are you praying? And I'm not just talking about flare prayers throughout the day. God, help me get through this test. That's good. You ought to be praying that way. You know, they, they thought they kicked God out of public school. They didn't. As long as they're tests, there'll be prayer. Amen? <laughs> there may not be a lot of studying, but there'll always be prayer. I believe a lot of people pray. I believe you pray. I believe you pray probably more than you think you do. Um, Barna Research says that 
Slightly more than four out of five adults in the United States, that's 84%, claim that they have prayed in the last week. I bet, how many of you prayed this week? Any kind of prayer? Look at there. <laughs> we pray. Why do we pray? Because we realize we need God's help. This is interesting study. A group of physicians used a double-blind drug study looking at the efficacy of Christian prayer on healing. And patients from the San Francisco General Medical Center were randomly divided into a placebo group and a test group. Patients in the test group were prayed for by Christians. Patients in the placebo group didn't receive any prayer. You don't want to be in the placebo group. <laughs> if you go get sick, you better get people praying for you because what happened is before prayer was initiated for either group, there was no... Um, differences between the placebo group and the prayer group before anybody started praying for either group. But after prayer was initi initiated, the results demonstrated that patients who were prayed for suffered less congestive heart failure, less diuretic and antibiotic therapy, fewer episodes of pneumonia, fewer cardiac arrest, and were less likely to be intubated and ventilated. Prayer. Prayer works. How many of you are a testimony that prayer works? Prayer works. You've seen God work in prayer. U.S. News and the Internet site BeliefNet funded a poll to learn about why, how, where, and when people pray. And here's just a summary of their findings. 75% of the people who prayed were Christian. That means 25% of people who pray don't claim to even be followers of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Okay. 56% of those surveyed said that they most often pray for family members. And 3.3% they even pray for strangers. Now here's kind of what I think a, a prayer for a stranger would be. Lord, you better help him. I'm about to hurt him. <laughs> but... Really, our prayers ought to be for our enemies and those we don't know. A little over 38% said that the most important purpose of prayer is intimacy with God. I think I would be in that category and say that's the purpose of prayer, is to get connected to God. It's not just to get things you want, it's to get connected to God. 41% say that their prayers are answered often. 41% believe in the power of prayer, that their prayers are answered. Only 1.5% say that their prayers are not answered. 73% say that when their prayers are not answered, the most important reason that they gave for their prayers not being answered was that they believed it didn't fit in God's plan. Very wise perception. 5% say that they pray most often in church, a house of worship. 5% most often pray in church. Now that's an encouraging statistic because 79% say they pray most often at home or somewhere else. In other words, you're praying more outside the church then you are inside the church. I mean, that's pretty good because where do you live? You don't live here. You worship here. We do need to pray here, but we, we, we live and work out there. You know, E.M. E. M. Bounds was an evangelist and Bible teacher a, a generation ago. He said what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or even more novel methods, but men and women Boys and girls, whom the Holy Spirit can use. People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. 
I mean, what would this church, what would your home and family, what would our community and our city and our country look like if God's people got really serious about intentional, focused, and fervent praying for the things the Bible says we ought to be praying for? And he, he does say, pray for kings and all men in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. And that's one thing God convicted me of when we were, went to that pastor's retreat uh, last month is that I had, I had uh, not been praying for our leaders the way I should be praying for them. I had ridiculed them. Oh, I'm good at that. I bet I have company too, don't I? I've ridiculed them. I point fingers at them. I blame them. I criticize them. But I wasn't praying for them like I should be. What a difference it would make if the people of God today were praying for the president, the vice president, the congressmen, the mayors of every city, the governors of every state. What if we were praying for all of our religious leaders, pastors, churches? What a difference it would make. I think the disciples and followers of Jesus today need to say to Jesus what the disciples of that day said to Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I want you to turn to John 17 and this week and probably next week. It'll probably take us a couple of weeks to look at the... You remember we've been in, in John 14, 15, and 16. You remember. This is that private conversation that Jesus is having with just his immediate 12 disciples. I've told you before, I'm not sure that Judas was privy to chapters 14 and 15 and 16 because he may have already left the upper room. This is taking place in the upper room during the Last Supper. Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Jesus, uh, Satan entered Judas, and he got up and he left. So I doubt Judas was even in the room when Jesus was teaching this, but nonetheless, he's writing this to his disciples, or he's speaking this to his disciples. He's teaching them. And remember, it culminates with chapter 16, verse 33. The last thing Jesus said to them was, in this world you will have trouble. In me you'll have peace. So fear not. I've overcome the world. That's the, that, he summed it all up. And so we've been examining chapter 14, 15, and 16. How do we be overcomers? And so we're looking at this in John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. This was Now, Jesus spent some time teaching in the uh, upper room in those first three chapters, John 14, 15, 16. But now in John 17, I think this is taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane. I gave you a little tidbit of a picture back in Luke and in Matthew 26 where Jesus was in great agony as he knew what he was facing. But I believe that this John 17 prayer happened before what I just told you happened in Matthew 26. He was praying this and it culminated into him being arrested and, and all of that. So we need to look at John 17 and say, what is it that Jesus prayed? And how can I use that as a model you know, Jesus gave us the model prayer. When Jesus, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus gave them the model prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to quote every time you pray. But if you look at that, you'll see, even as we look at John 17, that a lot of it goes hand in hand about things we need to be praying. You see, because we don't always know how to pray. And, and that's sometimes why we don't pray. Lord, I don't even know what to ask. My prayers seem to be so repetitive. I seem to be praying the same things over and over. And I really want to know, Lord, what's on your heart. What, what do you want me to pray for? What's, what's on your heart? What do I pray? You know, a man took his, 
his small son with him to town one day to, to run some errands. Well, lunchtime came, and so the two of them went to this diner, and they, uh, the father sits down on a stool in front of the counter, and he picks up his little boy, and he sets him on the stool next to him, and they order, they get their food, and the father says, Son, we're just going to say a silent prayer over our food. Okay, so let's bow our heads, and they bow their heads. And in a couple of minutes, the father's finished, and he raises his head, and he notices his son still has his head bowed and his eyes closed, and kept on going for an unusually long time. Finally, his son picked up his head and opened his eyes, and said, his father said, Son, what in the world were you praying about for all that time? His son said, I don't know. It was silent prayer. Sometimes we don't know what in the world to pray for. You ever feel like that? But Jesus taught his disciples to pray by modeling it for them. And we can learn how to pray and what to pray for from the Word of God. Let me tell you this. That's, this all connects together. If you'll get connected to the Word of God, it will bless your prayer life. It will make you a person of prayer. Because you begin to get what's on God's heart. And you begin to want to ask for things that God's showing you in His Word. And so as we study John 17, we're going to see what was on the heart of Jesus and what we can pray for that will help us to be the overcomers that He told us we are. So number one, what did Jesus pray for? Well, let's pick up with verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may also glorify You. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours, and all are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus, this chapter, was praying for his followers, praying for you. I'm going to show you that later in a week or so that you were included in this prayer. You see, he looked through the corridors of time because he's boundless. Time doesn't bind him. And he saw you who would become his follower. And he was praying for you in this passage. And you know, the first thing he asked God to do was to glorify himself in your life and in my life. He asked that God be glorified through him. And then in turn, he said, Lord, let them be, you be glorified in them. So this is one thing we need to pray for. We, want, we need to pray that Jesus would be glorified in our lives. 
In other words, you want everything you do, your work, your career, your recreation. You know, it's a shame. Have you ever been to the Y ball fields? I mean, they say we live in a Christian town, but something happens between the entrance to Remington Park and the actual fields. People forget who they belong to, right, Bobby? I asked that to Bobby because he's been a coach and he's also a referee. And he comments about how surprising it is and how sad it is for Christian men and women, parents, acting like godless, devil-filled people because their little boy didn't get to play one minute longer than that little boy. Come on, people! Grow up! Remember, you represent Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go, you're never off duty. You may clock out at your work and go home and not have to be responsible till the next morning, but that ain't true when you belong to Jesus. You're always on duty. People are always looking at you. And you want to pray, God, be glorified in my life and everything that I do, everything that I say, my motives, the intents of my heart. Be glorified in my life. And if you begin to pray that, let me tell you what, if you start praying that way every day, you're going to start thinking that way. You're going to have some slip-ups and mess-ups along the way, for sure, because you're a human being. But if you start praying that, you'll begin seeing. Others will begin to see that your life is different. You'll begin to notice a change, maybe little by little at first. You see, you're asking Him to help you make your life about Him. When you say, Lord, be glorified in my life, you're saying, God, I want you to help me to make my life about you and not about me. Now, what if we prayed that and we put that in the context of every, every area or every arena of our lives? The ball fields, okay? Work. You know, I told you last Sunday or Sunday before about this man who owned and ran a trucking company in Florida. And it wasn't Watkins. That's the one that started here and then moved to Florida. It was another trucking company. The owner, the boss, got saved. And a man who was working under him, because of the owner getting saved, he got saved. And this was the man telling me this story. In fact, it was one of Reed's uncles, my son-in-law's uncle. He was telling me this story. And many other men in that company got saved, and it just transformed that whole company. He said everything was different. The way we did business was different. Because, see, this one man decided that he was going to let his life glorify God and it influenced every person in that company. And it changed the direction, focus of that company. You see, where you work, if Jesus is glorified in your life, it's going to change where you work. You may not be the boss or the owner, but it's still going to influence the people around you. Your home life. What if mamas and daddies, even, even kids, decided to start praying, God, I want you to be glorified in my life. And you begin thinking that way, and Jesus begins answering that prayer. Now, let me ask you this. Let me rewind. Do you believe in the power of prayer? How many of you say, yes, I believe in the power of prayer? We typically apply that to sickness. But do you think that applies to what I'm talking about now? That if you ask Jesus, Lord, 
will you please be glorified in my life? Will you please help me to glorify you? Do you think Jesus wants to answer that prayer? Yes or no? Do you believe Jesus can answer that prayer? Yes. Do you believe Jesus will answer that prayer? You see, the Bible says about prayer in the book of James, I know it's actually 1 John, he says, if we pray for His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we know we have what we've asked for. So if you're praying a biblical prayer, Lord, be glorified in my life, He hears you, and He's going to accomplish it. Just think if, if teenage kids and, who are saved started asking God to glorify Him in their home and family. What if mamas and daddies started praying that? Husbands and wives started praying. What do you think that would, how do you think that would revolutionize the home, your home and your environment? You think Jesus would begin answering that prayer? He sure would. Again, there would be slip-ups, there would be mess-ups, but Jesus would be working. There would be, when there are slip-ups and mess-ups, if you're asking God to be glorified in your life, you'd be willing to go and humble yourself because Jesus was meek and humble. You'd be willing to say, Honey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I lost my cool, sweetheart. Will you please forgive me? Parents would be doing that to their children, too. I've had to do that often to my kids. Go back to them and say, I'm sorry, I was too harsh. I was angry. Will you please forgive me? And so... What about, what, what about church? What, what, if, what if you started asking, Lord, be glorified in my life here at church. Help me to glorify you here. You see, then church is not so much about you, is it? Who is church about again? It's about Him. We are the body of Lee Waller. Negative. Ghost Rider. Mm-mm. You better not be looking like me. We are the body of whatever we decide we want to be. Whatever we vote as a majority to be, that's who we are, right? Why not? That's logical. We are the body of who? Jesus Christ. Who's the head of this church? Lee Waller? The deacons? The majority? Who's the head? Jesus. So then church is about Jesus, right? So what if we started glorifying, asking Jesus to glorify himself in this church and helping us to glorify him? Then it's not about personal preferences anymore, right? Mine, yours, or all of ours together. It's about him. Lord, how can we glorify you? And we begin to see what's on his heart. And we begin acting like a church after his own heart. And not a selfish church. And I'm not saying we're a selfish church. I'm just saying the church in general, as far as across the denominational lines and the church nationwide, is typically very self-centered. So sometimes we don't know what we need to pray for, but here's one thing we can start. Lord Jesus, help me to glorify you. That's what Jesus prayed. Father, Glorify yourself through me. And he prayed in verse 10 that I be glorified in them. That's on the heart of Jesus. He wants to glorify himself in you. How can you let him do that? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself.
Now, remember, he was referring to his crucifixion, that he was fixing to be nailed to a cross, and they were going to lift that cross up. And it was through the cross that Jesus would draw people to himself. Jesus tells us, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and do what? Take up his cross and follow me. And you cannot take up your cross and embrace yourself. Jesus said, there will be some who will lose their life for my sake and the gospels, but save it. And then there's some who will try to save their life, but lose it. How can you lose your life for Christ's sake? You can start by laying it down at home. Stop demanding your own way. You can start at the job. You can start in little bitty ways. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. You can start in simple ways. Lord, I want your life to be manifested in me. You see, because I realize about me that too much of me is what people see, and I don't want people to see me. It's I want people to see Christ in me. And if you see anything good in me, it is, the, it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His transforming power in me. Because without Him, I'm nothing. Lord, glorify Yourself in my life. Could you pray that this morning? With all honesty, can you ask the Lord to help you do that? Because with that prayer comes some self-sacrifice, some self-surrender. You have to be willing to let go of yourself, to let go of your preferences and your way to let Jesus have His way with your life. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? I brought you there at the beginning of this message. He said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me, please, please, Take this cup, this bitter cup of suffering and agony. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's how we have to approach this. When we're asking God, Lord, help me to glorify Jesus in my life. We have to be willing to let God have his way with you. You have to give him the keys to your whole life. Holding nothing back committing it all to him. And he begins to glorify himself through you. And you know what happens? You're going to, we're going to see this later. He begins to fill you with joy unspeakable. Reese and I were talking before church and praying. He was make, made this comment. This is so true. You know, we desire to be happy. God calls us to be holy. You know where happiness is found? In holiness. It's when we become more like Christ. He begins to fill your heart with over, unspeakable joy. You begin to find joy and pleasure in things that you never thought you could. The things of God. And the things of this world and the things that you, you used to think were fun and pleasurable, it's not that they're bad anymore, but they're consuming your time and your life and making you ineffective. And, and you no longer have, those things don't have a hold on appeal for you because you're all about now glorifying God. How can you do what you're doing for Christ? How can you do what you're doing and point people to Christ? Think about that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Think about that.